say, y'all know the nighttime study is really with us in spirit. Hello, nighttime study. Uh, they will watch this video next week. I was with them last night, had a great time seeing them in person, but now Emily is making sure I don't miss video because last time I videoed it, it was turned around and it was all black. So that would not have been fun. So we are solving all our, our problems slowly. Um, okay, so I'm gonna read our passage from the get-go. So turn to Judges 3, 7 through 31. If you happen to miss last week and you want to catch up, you, in the Friday email that goes out, there's an audio link. You can listen to it in the car, on a walk, um, and catch up. Um, but we're going to start in Judges 3 um, with a very stinky story. Um, let's start in verse 7. So the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and Asherahs. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathim, king of Mesopotamia. And the children of Israel served Cushan Rishathim, whatever, eight years. When the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the children of Israel who delivered them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord delivered Cushan Rishathim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathim. <laughs> so the land had rest for 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. And the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord strengthened Eglon, king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. Then he gathered to himself the people of Ammon and Amalek, went and defeated Israel, and took possession of the city of Palms, which, by the way, is Jericho. So the children of Israel served Eglon, king of Moab, 18 years. But when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them, Ehud, the son of Gera the Benjamite, a left-handed man. By him the children of Israel sent tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Ehud made himself a dagger. It was double-edged and a cubit in length, fastened it under his clothes on his right thigh. So he brought the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And when he had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who had carried the tribute. But he himself turned back from the stone images that were at Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. He said, keep silence, and all who attended him went out from him. So Ehud came to him. Now he was sitting upstairs in his cool private chamber. Then Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. Then Ehud reached with his left hand, took the dagger from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. Even the hilt went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade. For he did not draw the dagger out of his belly, and his entrails came out. Then Ehud went out through the porch and shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. When he had gone out, Eglon's servants came to look, and to their surprise, the doors of the upper room were locked. So they said, he is probably attending to his needs in the cool chamber. So they waited till they were embarrassed, and still he had not opened the doors of the upper room. 
Therefore they took the key and opened them, and there was their master fallen dead on the floor. But Ehud had escaped while they delayed and passed beyond the stone images and escaped to Sirah. And it happened when he arrived that he blew the trumpet in the mountains of Ephraim, and the children of Israel went down with him from the mountains, and he led them. Then he said to them, Follow me, for the Lord has delivered your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him, seized the fords of the Jordan leading to Moab, and did not allow anyone to cross over. And at that time they killed about 10,000 men of Moab, all stout men of valor, not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. And after him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 men of the Philistines with an ox goad. He also delivered Israel. Whew, okay, thanks for reading that with me. I think it's really good that we have the actual story, the actual word of God. So I'm going to pray that he will give us understanding. Lord Jesus, please, you have put this word in on this rainy day for us to see. I pray that we would glean from it what you want us to know. And that by the end of it, we'll be more in love with you. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, this is a really stinky story. <laughs> it's the stinkiest story in the Bible, I think. Um, and uh, actually, uh, one of the commentators said that our translation is actually pretty genteel. That really, it should say dung came out. So basically, it was a mess. It was a mess. Um, and with five kids, I've had some messy diapers. There have been times that I still think about. It is trauma with a little T. Um, just of messy diapers. And so now to think about this story and just the just all the details is, is very gruesome. Um, and so we're going to look at this stinky story. Then we're going to see how God is in the stinky. And then we're going to talk about our left-handed Savior. Okay, so that's where we're going in your handout today. Okay, so let's set up the context. Uh, like we talked about last week, in Judges, we're going to see a pattern. We're going to see that God has brought them into the promised land, but God's people cheat on him. They, they love other gods. They worship other gods, and, um, and that gets them in trouble. And God sends somebody like the king of Moab with other countries to attack and put Israel under their hand and so that they suffer. And then they suffer and cry out to God, and God listens and has such a soft spot. Remember we talked about last week, he is a sucker for their groaning. And he goes back and sends a deliverer, a judge, which is like a military hero. And that judge just kicks out the bad people, and once again, God's people are free, and they're restored, and there's peace. And then they leave God again. And in this cycle, it will go downhill. It will get worse and worse. And this evil cycle will actually be, they'll be more in trouble than they were at the beginning. So here we see the first couple of cycles. And we're going to basically talk about Ehud and when he was the judge. Um, first of all, they sinned. God is using the Moabites in your homework. Um, you can see the context for who the Moabites were in Israel's history. Um, you can see that, um, that basically they had caused trouble for Israel in the past in a couple of ways. 
Moab and Ammon actually are the descendants of an incestuous relationship that Lot had with his two daughters. If you remember the story about Sodom and Gomorrah when Lot and his family escaped and he and his daughters were in a cave and they got his father, their father drunk and slept with him and both had Moab and Ammon. And if you ever think God's Bible should be made into a movie, you can't take anybody under 18 because it's just crazy, okay? Um, so it'll be for mature audiences only for if the Bible were on Netflix. Um, so basically, though, that's really not why, as, as icky as that is um, to us, the real reason God held a grudge against Moab is because they were mean to his people when they were leaving Egypt. They would not give them water. I think they even attacked them. They it just God's like, you can't let them into my assembly for 10 generations. Whereas God told his people not to let Egyptians into his assembly for only three. So that shows how angry he was at Moab. Um, you Just as an aside, you never have to worry about carrying a grudge when someone mistreats you because God sees it. That's why God says, leave vindication to me. And I think it's interesting that when God's people are being so uh, mean to God and being just forgetting how much he's loved them, that he'll use Moab to be the tool. And it just shows that God is sovereign over all these countries. He's sovereign over all of these players. And um, anyway, so we meet Ehud and Eglon, okay? First of all, Ehud. He's left-handed because there was something wrong with his right hand, probably a deformity. I don't know if it's an accident. I don't know if he was born this way, but what, for whatever reason, it is an identifying thing about him. It's very visible because we can see that the king of Moab is not threatened by him. He, lets, he tells all his people to leave him alone when Ehud says, I have a special message for you from God. The other just kind of dig for Ehud as a person is he's from the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin means son of the right hand. So how would that make you feel if that's how you grew up and you're from the tribe that's known as son of the right hand and your right hand is withered? You would probably feel less than. You would probably be, if you, were, if you had it as a kid, I guarantee you he was made fun of on the playground. Um, if even he, it happened in his adult years, he's not, he's probably doesn't look like he could go to war because he can't fight with his right hand. But Ehud has the just chutzpah to make a two-edged sword and strap it to his thigh and sneak in this sword and have this whole ruse to get alone with the king of Moab. So what do we know about the king of Moab? Well, the writer makes sure we know one thing. He is fat, okay? I'm talking, this is what I picture when I picture you, Jabba the Hutt from Star Wars. You know, the blah, blah, blah. I mean, oh my goodness, that thing is so gross. That's what I picture, is that kind of obesity. And the writer, like, this is what's so cool about God. The writer is definitely like making this an exciting story for me to teach you today. And think about just, think about, you know, men are studying this 
in our church on Wednesday. Like they studied it yesterday. And I was telling our small group leaders, you know, the women have Ruth, but the men have Ehud. This is such a guy story of just there's a sword and there's a fat man and he plunges it into his gut and the sword disappears. It's 18 inches long. That's how long a cubit is. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? And just the ooze and then the dung coming out and it's smelly. That's probably why the attendants thought he was going to the bathroom. I mean, you know, everybody's been real, really genteel about this, but I have to tell you, this is gross. This is like gross smell, gross yucky all over the floor. I mean, it's bad. And there's even the idea, I'm not sure, I don't want to say it's true, but there's the idea that has been said that the way Ehu had to sneak out was probably through the sewage. Because to get out of this private chamber, there was probably one way out. So, stinky, very stinky story, okay? So, he escapes while Eglon's men think he's in the restroom. And the next thing we know, 10,000 Moabite warriors are slaughtered and the Lord has given peace to his people for 80 years. That is what that stinky story gave God's people. So, let's think about how we can see God in the stinky, okay? Um, like I said earlier, we see God's place over history. Um, not just our personal history, not just Ehud's personal story of his crippledness, but in God's people story. And he uses the nations to do his will. Max Licata says, God will use whatever he wants to display his glory. Heavens and stars, history and nations, people and problems. God has control. I had someone send me a prayer today on a text from out of town. And one of the lines in the prayer was, it was I think it was a prayer like to feel safe and to feel like things are okay. And, and it was said, there was a line that said, I am okay and God's kingdom is okay. Like we're good because God is in charge. Sometimes it doesn't feel that way though. Sometimes when you think about the church, it's like little bitty Lucy Pevensey and the Lion Lynch and Wardrobe with her little bitty sword and the army against her. And it looks like the church is weak. The church is, church is frail. And we forget that God has said, um, the gates of hell will not prevail against it, which means the church is on the opposition. Not that we're able to defend ourselves, but we're actually attacking the gates of hell. And so... Sometimes we need to remember, God is on the throne, y'all. He is ruling. It looks dark. It looks stinky. But God is in charge, and he has got power over all of history. No matter where we think history is right now, like, oh my goodness, what is happening in our culture right now? Secondly, God has a purpose. His purpose in this story is to save them from their groaning. He wants to rescue them. And he has lots of tools in his toolbox. In just the three uh, judges we see in Judges 3, you have uh, Othniel, which is Caleb's nephew, that in the previous lesson, uh, he basically won Caleb's daughter in marriage by defeating and taking over some territory. Um, he's like the covenant kid. He's the church kid. He's the one that grew up that did stuff, you know, probably by the book, although there are a lot of church kids that don't, and I'm not knocking that. I've got lots of those around me in my life. 
Um, I'm just saying that he was probably the stereotypical good old Israelite boy, you know. He was the quarterback on the high school team. He went to college. He married the Caleb's daughter. He had the great property. Like he had defeated people. He was probably strong. And he's, he, people aren't surprised he's a judge. I'll put it that way. When we get to Ehud, this is kind of shocking. But when we get to Shagmar, the next one, he's not even a Jewish guy. He's like a son of Anath, which was like a giant. I mean, he, that was probably not the, the stereotypical judge. And so God uses a cripple, an outsider, and even the good kid to do his will and to rescue his people and to save them. His goal is salvation. His goal is to redeem you, families, this world. That's why Jesus came. We also see, though, not only God's place in history, his purpose, but his personality. Um, God is not boring. Look at this story. He gets almost humor to get praise that he deserves. Um, How would we even be thinking about Ehud if the story read, and then a guy named Ehud took over, beat Moab, and God's people had peace for 80 years? We'd be like, yay, God saved them, but... I don't remember that. God's personality shows through that he gets it. And he is providing a great bedtime story. He is providing an awesome story for family devotions and things to tell around the fire on a, you know, a campfire. He also gets his people. He, he is like, he's not this Victorian God that's sitting and can't get his white gloves dirty. He is saying, look at how I work. I work in the bathrooms of history. You can't get more private and vulnerable than a bathroom. So which ones are the stories worth telling? Do you tell the football story about, yeah, they took a knee and we won? That's boring. But you say, oh man, he caught that pass, barely got at his fingertips. He had all these, you know, the tacklers or whatever they're called around him. (laughs) You know, they just... It was like, I can't believe he made that score at the last second of the game. That story gets told. This God's given us an awesome football story. And so just like a parent gets down on his knees and plays Star Wars with his boys, or a mama pours tea with a tea set, God gets down and plays with us and showing us how he redeems his people. And why would God use this type of story? Why would he do that? Maybe it's just to delight his people. He enjoys seeing us delight in him. And maybe it's um, so that we can have pride in our God. Like have pride, you have pride in those awesome stories about your people and about your God. Like this is the kind of God we have. That that mean old fat king of Moab got it in his gut when he had been mean to God's people. That's the, that's the takeaway. So how does that impact me today? Well, first of all, we're not going to make a sword and go kill all you know, the bad fat people in our lives. You know? That's not the point. But this is, these are like three things I want you to think about. First of all, God uses, we see in verse 4 and verse 12, he uses bad moments in our history to test us and to chasten us. 
he sent this big, bad, fat King Eglon to make his people unhappy. And this, he was a stinky king. And it says to test him and to chasten him back to him. They had left him. But this is the other thing I want you to remember. God never gives a snake to his children. He only gives bread and fish. He never gives a stone to his children. Remember when in Matthew, when Jesus is talking on Sermon on the Mount, and he's like, you know, you pray for, you know, a, you pray and God gives you things that are good for you. But sometimes that fish and bread may look like a stink bomb. It may look like a stink bomb to you, and his sovereignty applies to our stinky moments as well. So, sometimes it may look like a divorce. Sometimes it may look like a death. Sometimes it may look like a loss of a job or financial strain. Sometimes it may look like your prayers you've been praying. Not only God's not answering them, but he is answering them in the opposite way. And we struggle to trust, can God be in this stinky circumstance? God delights in our in saving us, and he always wins. But sometimes the stories of salvation seem stinky. But lastly, I want us to see how really, and I hope you talk about this in your small groups, that this is God's MO with us all through scripture and all through time. And really, uh, and it's the kind of savior he sends. He sends a left-handed savior for us. And that's Jesus. And turn on your handout to Psalm, I mean Psalm, Isaiah 53. I'm going to read that real quickly. On page two. This is Isaiah given a prophecy about the Messiah. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and is one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. 
and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, and makes intercession for the transgressors. God himself sent an unlikely hero for our salvation. If you look in verses 2 and 3, you can see he is not somebody we would have picked out. He's, he's kind of came out of nowhere. He has no former majesty. He was not pretty. You know, that's the thing. You know, I don't know if Jim Cavazel is a great Jesus. He is too good looking. You know, every piece of art where Jesus is gorgeous and beautiful is not biblical. According to Isaiah 53, he's the type of guy we would not have been attracted to. Would you need in a leader? What, how many ugly, ugly political candidates are there? You know, uh, why would they hire makeup artists and wardrobe consultants? It's to be pretty and attractive. Jesus was not supposed to be. He was going to be such an unlikely hero. Um, he was probably had the reputation of a bastard, the Messiah. Um, when you look at the five women in his genealogy, most of them have like at least three have some sort of sexual sin associated with her. Um, I taught a retreat one time for a church and when I taught on Tamar, who had sex with her father-in-law to get pregnant, a group of them really had a hard time holding that truth that that person was kin to Jesus. And it shows how unlikely this kind of Savior is. Even one of Jesus' disciples, Nathaniel, said, What good comes out of Nazareth? Y'all, he was not from the right hometown. He wasn't from a good family, so to speak. He didn't, he, he had nothing, no background to make him the right pick. Um, and then his hometown, even his hometown, kicked him out. They didn't like him. They didn't like what he had to say. If you look in Luke 4, they tried to kill him when he talked about Elijah taking care of a foreign widow instead of an Israelite widow. So it's fascinating that he is so unlikely. He is, he is ugly to the world. And then it's a really unlikely plan. It's, it, you see the disciples in the New Testament struggle with Jesus when he talks to, starts to talk about dying. And they're like, no, 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 no. Peter's like, yeah, that is not how you lead this plan. This is not going to work. And he even says to him, get behind me, Satan, because that's so not the way of God for this salvation. Who, who establishes a religion based on the hero dying? Dying in embarrassment, naked on a cross in a junkyard. Who would ever design this salvation? The kind of God that sends a cripple in to kill a fat king. That kind of God. The God that says, let me use the most unlikely of things to prove how much I love people and how strong I am. You know, Christianity is the only religion where the leader fails in a way. And we know because of Resurrection Sunday that he didn't fail. 
but on that Friday, it looks like it was done. We even see his disciple on the road to Emmaus leaving, going, well, I guess I gotta go back to whatever he was doing before, because this plan failed. So who gives, as I say, who gives their life for an enemy? Who rescues by death? And then we have to remember, oh yeah, our God loves the unlikely story. He loves the unlikely rescue. And it has the perfect ending, just like this story has the perfect ending of victory. And 10,000 of the enemy, the strongest people, were killed by a group of people who had been basically enslaved by Moab, led by a cripple. And that is the ending that Isaiah in verse 10 gives us, that the pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. But this should encourage us too, because we follow in Jesus' footsteps. And in 1 Corinthians, and that's also in your handout, we are unlikely as well. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So, you feeling pretty crippled today? You feeling like you got the withered right hand and you don't fit in and you don't look like you're going to ever do anything for God or for his kingdom? Delight in your weakness because God does. How do we walk? You don't discount your story, your weak, your weak story. God knows you're made of dust. He knows you struggle. He knows you get scared. You know, if I looked at my daughter when she was two playing kitchen, would I look at her and go, I can't believe you haven't, you know, hand, you know, kind of conquered souffles yet. You should have done that. You've been plaguing your kitchen all morning. God does not look at us and go, why haven't you mastered trusting me yet? Because he sees the two-year-old in us. And yes, he's going to send us things. He's going to teach us. He's like my daughter. I can't wait to teach her how to make a souffle or flip an egg in the kitchen. But I don't do it out of criticism and meanness. I do it as in you need to learn. You need to learn to trust me. I'm going to send you this so you learn to trust me. You need to follow me. So I'm going to send you this to come and chase me. I'm going to give you a stinky story so you delight in me. And you remember that I'm not limited by the perfect plan that you think needs to happen in your life. And in your children's <coughs> lives, by the way. Or in our country's life or in our church's life. God loves to surprise us. So don't be surprised by suffering in the stinky moments. If Jesus suffered and he did nothing wrong, we can, not, we can expect that too. Don't discount the stinky or weak salvations also that God sends you. As I said before, are you facing something that you go, this is what you have for me? This is gross. I don't want to deal with a lot of poop. 
And poop could be whatever you know what it is in your life. It doesn't have to be actual poop. It can be health stuff. It can be a child's mental illness. It can be a neighbor's meanness. It can be your husband ignoring you. It can be your bank account straining at you. It can be all sorts of things. Things that you even go, I'm not sure how God can spin this straw into gold. Why would God allow this when I've been praying for blessing? Why does he send this? And then you look at the cross and you remember that God himself walked through the sewage of our lives and took on the worst fat enemy, Satan himself and death, and slayed it, slayed it for us so that we have peace and we have victory. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for slaying, for slaying and that sword disappearing in the gut of Satan. And Father, we are living, though, between the cross on Good Friday and between when you come back. And there still has the scent of poop in the air for us. And we struggle and we're scared and we, we need to trust you, but we're weak. And you know we're weak. Please reach down, hug us, comfort us. Show us that you are in charge and that you are mighty and that while we're scared, you're not scared because you've already defeated the things we're scared of and you use things to teach us this. I praise you for saving us and I pray for these women as we kind of interact with this truth and apply it to our lives that you would, you would just grow in our estimation. In Christ's name, amen.